Hey everyone, and welcome to Radically Normal. I'm Michael, and I'm here with Andre, and on today's episode, we'll be chatting about Exodus 32 through 34, where the Israelites sin, and Moses intercedes and sees the Lord's glory. We hope you enjoy the conversation. What's up, everybody? So, jumping right into Exodus today, um, we'll first start with a little recap on what we talked about last week, which was the instructions on um, the um, garments for the priests, as well as um, Aaron's sons. And so we kind of took a a step away from um, the construction of the tabernacle, but got to see more instructions on what they were to wear and some of the processes for um, them stepping into the roles of priesthood. And today we won't have any more instructions, thankfully. And we're going to move into, um, as Michael said in the introduction, um, a discussion of um, of the golden calf, along with some other things. Michael said these are some of his favorite chapters um, in the whole Bible. So we're excited to, to jump right into all that. Yeah, I do think that's true. And I just want to say that it's just this, this text, these three chapters are in the midst of and come at the end of something that was taking us in an entirely different trajectory. So the whole point of Exodus 1 through 31, it was all on a good note. Like, yes, it began, they were in slavery, but we saw as early as the end of chapter 2 that the Lord saw the people, he heard their cries, he remembered his covenant with Abraham, and then we had them taken out of Egypt, and then we had them construct the tabernacle after the giving of the law, and so this is all about God getting his people out of Egypt and God dwelling in the midst of his people, and then... We get here and it's like we just take a complete fall. And some people actually see a similarity between Israel and Adam in these stories. And if there was a fall of Adam in Genesis 3, this is like after all the good that we've seen and the building of the new creation, the Eden and the tabernacle, now we have the fall of Israel as they uh, see that Moses is delayed in coming down from the mountain and they, and, and they tell Aaron to construct an idol. Yeah, dude, so let's jump right in with that. Um, in verse one, we see, um, in chapter 32, of course, uh, with the golden calf, we see that Moses was on the mountain and he was delayed. We see in, in verse one. And so, as you mentioned, uh, the people go to Aaron and tell him, uh, that they should, that he should make up some gods who shall go before us. Uh, so as we've seen throughout all of the chapters that we've read so far and walk through together, um, God's presence has been guiding, leading, um, delivering uh, Israel um, through, you know, all of the, the different trials they had, um, you know, not having food, not having water, um, out of Egypt, uh, you know, through the Red Sea, all of those things. And now there's a slight delay of Moses not getting back to them. Um, they know that, uh, you know, Moses left them to go speak to Yahweh. Now he is delayed in coming back. And their first response is that they ask Aaron to build them, um, to build them these gods, so idols um, that can go before them, that can guide them. So they're basically now uh, not putting their trust in Yahweh, but they have this slight delay. Now they want um, something else that they can worship, something else that, you know, as it says, that can go before them, that they can feel uh, that sense of safety. Um, and knowing that they can worship this new idol um, 
And so that's where we are right now. Yeah, and so actually, if anyone's listening and you listen to what Andre just said carefully, you notice he said both idols or gods and idol singular. And it's kind of interesting in the text because that's what we see, that they make one singular idol, the golden calf, but it's spoken to in terms of the plural. Verse 1, make us gods who shall go before us. And then verse uh, verse 4, these are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. And so uh, people actually debate on, is the golden calf a separate god or is it a, still sinfully, is it a physical representation of Yahweh, which the Ten Commandments forbade them from making? So many ancient cultures didn't think the idol was the God itself, but that the idol was a physical representation of the God. And so some people actually think that the golden calf is supposed to be a physical representation of Yahweh, in which that would still be a sin against, um, the, against the Second Commandment. But... So we, so we have two options here. It either could be a separate God, a separate idol, or a physical representation of Yahweh. Either way, though, the people sin. And what's interesting is, and I remember Andre talking about this a couple episodes ago in Exodus 25. At the beginning, the people are contributing to the building of the sanctuary, to the, the, to the tabernacle, and they have to bring offerings of their things for its construction. And in verses 2 and 3, the people take off gold and they bring it for the construction. So it's almost as if they're bringing their own free will offering, but instead of it being for the tabernacle or for the temple later or something and for what the people will will build to worship Yahweh instead they're giving a free will offering to serve a false reality yeah and so that offering is going to look like um, all of the ring and all the gold that they have on them so Aaron tells them so he um, ends up doing what the people want and so he tells them to bring them all the gold from their their earrings, uh, all the gold that is on their wives, sons, and daughters, we see in verse 2, so that he can take all of that gold um, that he received of them, that that um, offering, is, as Michael described, um, for them to build this um, idol. And so Aaron takes all that gold and um, it says, fashions it into a golden calf. Um, and so what... Um, is really, you know, significant here is that, you know, this calf and what it really symbolizes, um, and, and it really shows, you know, what's important, uh, you know, to the people. So a part of it is, you know, as we, as we described that fear that Moses isn't there, Moses is the one who's been, you know, talking directly uh, to Yahweh. Um, he's the one who, who has guided them and, and, and told them all the things that, that Yahweh has said. And so that's one part of it, but then also um, it's that, so that fear of, of Moses not being there anymore, but then also, secondly, what the calf represents, um, this sign of fertility, um, which is one of the things that, you know, is so important, um, you know, culturally to them. But we can see um, that at a second's notice of, of having some kind of hardship of Moses not being there, they want something to rely upon for, you know, what they deem to be really important, which is, um, you know, having children, which is, you know, something that we've seen thematically um you know, in the Bible, you know, over and over of how important this is culturally of, of having kids. So it's, it's kind of twofold of, of how this, this breaks down um, and how the people lose faith in um, the Lord so quickly. Yeah. And actually speaking of losing faith in the Lord, it's interesting because this first little paragraph in the ESV closes out with in verse five, they're speaking of making a feast to Yahweh in verse six 
they raise up, they rise up early the next morning and they offer these burnt offerings and peace offerings. And then they sit down and rise up. And the last word in verse six is to play. And at least twice in Genesis, that connotes sexual immorality, that word play. And it's, and it's speak, and it's interesting because they kind of have this syncretism going on where they're trying to worship Yahweh and this false idol. And, it, and then one of their ethical actions coming out of it or unethical is sexual immorality. And so, I mean, just in terms of application, we can't have proper morality in our own lives if we don't have proper theology and live out that proper theology in terms of thinking about who God is. So a false sense of like who God is and what he wants. I mean, they don't think, they don't even know if God's with them. They doubt God's presence. That's what's happening in the first verse or two when they think Moses is gone. And so that false idea about who God is then leads itself to sexual morality in verse six. And so, you know, the next thing we see in, in verse seven and beyond um, is the Lord telling Moses of what is going on. So, you know, he informs Moses that um, the people have corrupted themselves. So they've built this idol they're partaking in um, sexual immorality and, and, and worshiping this golden calf, putting their, their trust in this golden calf that Aaron has made. Um, and we see that Yahweh is, is going to get um, upset. Uh, we see, you know, Yahweh present, you know, tell Moses that, you know, he is a jealous God. Um, what they've done is, you know, has angered the Lord. He's, you know, he says, um, that they, in verse eight, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I've commanded them and made themselves this idol. Um, and they have worshiped it and sacrificed, um, to it. Um, and so we see, um, what comes out of all of this looking to verse 10, um, is that now the, um, Yahweh tells Moses that now, you know, what's going to happen is that his wrath is going to burn hot against Israel. And so you know, the next thing we, we, we see is, is this conversation between Moses and, and the Lord where, where Moses begins to, you know, to plead um, with the Lord that, he, that his wrath may not, you know, just demolish, you know, Israel. And what's really interesting about that is that we see that, you know, in about two seconds um, from verses one through five, you know, the people have just completely turned their back away from what has really sustained them, brought them out of Egypt, delivered them out of the hands of slavery, you know, provided them with food and water and all of those things, um, which is the Lord. And we see, you know, that relationship between um, Yahweh and, you know, his people has really been what they've been working towards, all the instructions we've seen on, on building the tabernacle so that they can be in his presence and all these things. And in a second, they turn their back away from, from the Lord, but we see his grace shine through in his conversation with Moses, where where again, we see that um, the Lord provides a way um, for them to be redeemed out of this. And so I'll let you add anything, Michael, to that before I, get, before I go any further. Yeah, so the prayer, I think, is one of the, this is why I think this is part of like one of the best parts of the entire Bible. This prayer is just astounding, both in terms of its content and its efficacy and what we learn from those two things. And so the first thing, the content is that Moses seems to appeal to two things when he's interceding on Israel's behalf that, God's, that God would relent his wrath against Israel. The first is God's own glory and reputation among the nations, saying, basically, God, if you destroy them, then everyone's going to see that you brought us out of Egypt only to kill us off, and that's not going to rebound to your glory in the same way as if you saved and delivered your people. 
And then the second thing he appeals to in terms of content is God's faithful character. And he says, remember your covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob, or Israel in verse 13, your servants to whom you swore your own self and said, I will multiply your offspring. And so the focus is on God being faithful to his promise. And so those are the two things in terms of content that Moses appeals to. And then, uh, Verse 14 is the efficacy, the Lord relents. So we know from multiple places, Numbers 23, 1 Samuel 15, God doesn't actually change his mind, but we know that God is, is has entered the world in a way that in some way or another, he has entered into time. And so in the anthropomorphic language of the text, which just means in a way that humans can understand it, God has changed the decision on what's going on. And so I like this quote from Tim Chester who says, uh, we freely choose to pray what God has freely chosen we should, and God freely chooses to respond to the prayers he has ordained we would say. And so, especially if you're reformed or you think a lot about God's sovereignty like we have on this podcast, we can get into the habit of just thinking, oh, we don't need to pray. It's not like God is sovereign, or we can kind of doubt the efficacy of prayer. And I think this text is almost better than almost anything in the rest of scripture on teaching how prayer actually does something and how it fits into God's sovereign design. That's that's really, really good, Michael. And then we see that... Um that Moses, you know, then after, you know, this um, prayer, I mean, after he tries to intercede on behalf of the people and, and, and what's going on, um, we see that the Lord relents from, from, you know, bringing upon this disaster upon the people. And then we see that Moses is given um, two tablets, um, each of which is written on from, uh, you know, by Yahweh. And he goes down um, the mountain with these two um, tablets, these engraved tablets. And when he gets down from the mountain with these tablets, he sees that um, what he finds is, is the, the singing, the worshiping of the people are doing for this, for this golden calf, for this idol. And we see that Moses becomes angry about this and he breaks um, the two tablets, which he had brought down uh, from his time of speaking to Yahweh. And then what we see is that in his conversation with Aaron, we see that. Um, Can I just interject one thing real quick? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so in terms of singing, we've said this on the podcast before with our episode int- introducing theology and some other stuff, but everyone's a disciple of something. Everyone is a theologian. And in the same way, everyone worships something. The question is just, who are you going to worship? Remember that in Exodus 15, they're taken out of Egypt. The Exodus has just occurred, and they sing praise to God for his deliverance. But now they're singing is false worship. And so I just wanted to notice the note, the transition from true worship in 15 to false worship here in 32. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really good. And then, you know, so out of that, we see that uh, Moses becomes aware of this false worship. And so he goes to Aaron and, you know, ask Aaron, you know, Moses left, you know, Aaron to, to, to watch out for, to look over the people while he was on the mountain um, speaking to Yahweh and um, goes to Aaron and, and, you know, ask them, you know, what's, what's, what's going on um, that the people would, um, would have brought such a sin upon themselves. And Aaron's response in verse 22 is, um, you know, he blames it all on the people. So he says, you know, the people for they are set on evil. And he blames them further saying that um, they asked him to make gods who shall go before them um, because Moses was gone. And because of the, the delays, they didn't know where Moses was and all of those things. And so 
Um, he blames the people saying they're the ones who wanted the calf and that's why he made it. But we also see in verse 25 um, that truly it's, it's, it's not just, you know, the people did commit this, you know, this grave sin against, against the Lord, but it's also um, the fact that Moses was supposed to be their leader. So we see this, this case of bad leadership in verse 25. Uh, we see that it was Aaron who had let them break loose um, to the derision of their enemies in verse 25. So we see that um, it's, it's, the sin of the people, but it's also Aaron's lack of leadership, um, his lack yeah, um, yeah. of ability, um, you know, to take that responsibility upon himself as well. You know, we see that he wasn't responsible. He he didn't um, have the proper leadership skills at the time to prevent this from happening. Um, we see that because he blames um, the people. He blames Israel for for coming to him and, and asking for this cap, but he doesn't take that responsibility that, you know, he should have been the one to step up to say, you know, this isn't okay. Uh, that they should wait for Moses, that they shouldn't make these um, these idols, they shouldn't make this golden calf uh, to worship, um, you know, they shouldn't participate in the in the sexual morality and all of those things. Um, and, and so we're going to kind of see a, a call out for that and see um, what is the result of all of of this um, of this sin that, that has taken place. Yeah, and that's a good point of application. Again, not just not just the heart's tendency towards false worship and the efficacy of prayer but also that godly leaders are people of genuine repentance. And so it, just like Adam in the garden, who was in a sense the first priest, Adam was called out by God for his sin, and Adam said, but this woman you gave me, like it's her fault. And then now Moses confronts Aaron with his own sin. Instead of Aaron saying, yeah, I did wrong, I repent of my sin, Aaron shifts the blame and says, uh, you know the people that they are set on, on evil. So that's just a point of application. Godly leaders repent. Um, with integrity. And so like Andre said, then this leads to basically this confrontation in a violent manner of those who are unholy. And so um, all these people are killed. So the Levites come basically to Moses as people who are on the Lord's side, who have allied themselves with with Yahweh. And then so the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, verse 28. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And then Moses basically says, this, this is your ordaining as, as the Levites. And then, uh, then we move into this next section, just uh, closing out chapter 32, where Moses calls people out on their sin and says, perhaps I can make atonement. Uh, our friend Grant loves in Zephaniah 2 this perhaps about God saving them due to the destitution of sin. And here he says, perhaps I can make atonement. And he basically, I'll let Andre continue here, but he basically goes to, goes to Yahweh and offers himself as a sacrifice or as an atoning sacrifice on the people's behalf. Yeah, so we see that, you know, Moses says that he's going to try to atone um, for this great sin um, that has occurred. Um, so he goes to Yahweh and asks him, um, you know, that he take Moses uh, rather than, um, you know, wiping out um, all of Israel. And, you know, the the reasoning behind this is, is all the same thing. Uh, the promises that have been made, all the things Michael talked about earlier um, in the prayer, the initial prayer that Moses has to try to intervene for what has gone on. Um, and we see that, um, that Moses offers that, you know, he take the place of, of um, the people, you know, in the case of, of, of atoning for, for the sin that's gone on. Um, but we see that the Lord um, offers, you know, the Lord's not going to do this, but he said he's going to lead the people um, to the promised land, uh, that an angel is going to go before them. Um, and that he, you know, he is going, uh, you know, 
um, to guide them, to lead them despite this sin. Uh, but in verse 35, what we do see is that the Lord sends a plague on the people um, because of the sin um, that had occurred uh, because of, of the calf that, that Aaron made, um, you know, when Moses was gone uh, via that, that corrupted offering. All right, yeah, so now looking to verse 33, I know we spent like about 20 minutes on 32, but it really sets up the foundation for the next two chapters. So looking into 33, the Lord basically says to Moses, well, depart, leave Mount Sinai, and go to the land. However, there's one major, major, major problem. Verse 3, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So the Lord commands them to go to the land he's promised, but he won't be going with them. And this reminds me of a great worship song because the people in verse four realize what bad news this is. They get the land, but the real blessing is not the land. The real blessing is God. So if you think of heaven or new heaven and new earth, the real blessing is a place without worry and a place without sin. And it's just like a good place in the future. That's kind of missing the point. The point is that we get to dwell with God without the presence of sin forever. The focus is that we get God in fullness. And so that's the same thing here. They realize they won't have God dwelling in their midst, and it's bad news. And this reminds me of a worship song called um, In the Hands of Christ My King. And one of the lyrics is, uh, if you're not here, I don't want to be. I won't be moved unless you move. And so the real key thing is there, if you're not here, I don't want to be. And we have to ask ourselves when we're doing things for Jesus, when we're living, is it true of us that if God's not there, we don't want to be there? And so the people realize what bad news this is. And uh, God just says, if I'm amongst you, I'm going to consume you. And so the people mourn about that. And so we see the people mourn about that. And then we see kind of, um, you know, better news is kind of a shift from you know, the Lord isn't going to follow them into the promised land. But now we see in verse seven, the tent of meeting. So we see that um, there's going to be this tent um, that, you know, in which Moses is going to go into this tent and he's going to be able to um, seek after the Lord um, in this tent of meeting. And he's going to speak uh, to the Lord. We're going to see that there's a pillar of cloud that's going to descend upon the entrance of this tent. I'm in verse when the Lord and Moses are speaking. Um, and we're going to see that the people are going to watch and worship um, as Moses is speaking uh, to the Lord. So what's what's good about this here is that um, we see that this is um, not not the tabernacle of, of all the instructions that we've seen up to now, but, but this is a, um, a move towards um, the people being able to be in the presence of, of Yahweh, you know, through um, his speaking, uh, you know, to Moses. And we see that they're going to worship about this. They're going to praise about this. Um, so we see this, this shift from, from the mourning that, um, that Yahweh says he's not going to follow them into this, into the, the promised land uh, to now the worship when we see that Moses um, can speak um, to the Lord on their behalf in this tent. Exactly. And so, uh, one thing that's just worth noting before we kind of move into the next section is in, in verses 11 and 12, it kind of makes it sound as though uh, it's a it's a recurring event, but it is possible that it's single. So if you ESV and NIV make it sound like it's recurring, some commentators say it's possible as a one-time thing. But either way, so we get to 33, 12, and Moses says to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. And so after God is 
talking about judging and, and destroying, Moses is probably wondering if anybody is possibly coming. And then he speaks in verse 13 to the Lord's commitment to his people and how he cares for them. And so I think this is key because Yes, now God's relented of a major judgment in destroying Israel, but now Moses is actually interceding for God's presence to go with them. And that's the next step. Moses doesn't just want no judgment for Israel. He wants not just the negative to be absolved. He wants the positive to be present. And so he wants God to be with his people. And then moving on, we see that that now Moses, um, he wants to better understand or he wants to see... Um, the glory of Yahweh. He wants to he wants to be able to um, somehow, you know, better understand um, or you just, you know, see, um, you know, the glory of God. And so he wants, he wants to see uh, the, you know, the face of Yahweh. And we see that, and we see the response of the Lord to Moses is, is that, um, you know, he can't actually be able to see um, Yahweh or else, you know, what's going to happen is he's going to die. And so this really gives us a, a picture into, um, you know, the, the glory and, and, and greatness of Yahweh that, you know, just seeing uh, the face is just Moses seeing his face is, is, is going to result in death. But what we do see is, is that, you know, the Lord does let um, Moses see him from behind. Right. So we see that um, a bit of, of the grace and um, of Yahweh and, and, and that favor that, that, um, you know, Moses, you know, pleased with, you know, um, you know, you, you've said that you have found favor in my sight. Um, so that's why Moses wants to see his ways. Right. And we see that, you know, because of this, because of that, um, because of the favor that, that Yahweh finds in Moses and, and also because of his grace, we see that, you know, he does allow him to see um, from behind him and we see kind of um, what that means um, in terms of, um, you know, how the rest of the people perceive Moses. Yeah, I, I really like that. And I think just one other note before before chapter 34, which is another key chapter, is that Moses says in verse 18, please show me your glory. But what does God respond? I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name. So when Moses wants to see God's glory, God associates and and basically his answer is yes, partially. But the yes is to show you my glory, I'm going to show you my goodness. And I'm going to speak to you my name. And so there's something about Yahweh specifically being the God of his people. And there's something about uh, his goodness, his heart, his impulse towards mercy and graciousness and provision and generosity. All of that bound up together is a demonstration of his glory. And that's what we get in chapter 34, where in verses 6 and 7, he's going to do that. But just kicking off chapter 34, we know in 32, I think it was verse 19, Moses Moses' anger burned hot, and he he uh, crushed the tablets with the Ten Commandments. And so basically the Lord says, cut yourself two new tablets and come up, and I am going to give you these two new ones. And so that's kind of how we begin the next chapter. That's really good, and that's exactly um, how it starts off. So the Lord says, cut, cut yourself two new tablets, um, because Moses had broke the first two um in a fit of rage when he saw that the people were worshiping these idols and he tells them to come up to the mountain by himself, um, that, you know, no one should go up and, and see, um, you know, with Moses, uh, you know, what, you know, the rewriting of, of these tablets. Um, so we see that, that now, um, Yahweh is recommitting, um, 
you know, to providing the people with, with, with the two tablets, you know, with, um, you know, recommitting to, to what was the, the covenant, which was broken by making the making of the golden calf. And so we see that, you know, as Michael had mentioned earlier on in the episode, um, the importance, relevance, um, and, and power of, of prayer and um, how the things that Moses has done to um, atone for, for these, for the sins um, of what has gone on. Um, we see now, you know, what the result of that is, is, is that, you know, the Lord has, has now, you know, offered up grace upon the people, you know, and, and um, proceeded to, to re-offer up the, the two tablets that are broken. And so we see this as, as a symbol of, um, you know, the Lord again, um, showing, you know, his willingness uh, to forgive the people for what happened and um, to continue to walk before them. Exactly. And then so in verse five, the Lord descends in a cloud and I'm going to read these next two verses for due to their importance. And then I'm going to let Andre give his thoughts and then I'll give some of mine. So verse five, the Lord proclaims his name. Verse six, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Uh, and, the, and I think that's really, really good because it, it, it shows not only... Um, you know, the, this continuation of, of, you know, you know, what the purpose of, of this section is, which is, you know, the Lord showing to Moses and showing to, to the people that he's going to continue to walk for them. That what's most important is, um, as Michael has been saying um, so eloquently, that the Lord being with them is more important than any of the blessings that else they could have. But we also see here um, the Lord, the Lord's character, right? So all, all the things that, that the Lord is, you know, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, we see um, all of these points of, of his character. Um, and, you know, this not only um, is something that is going to bring Moses peace, but also something that, um, you know, instills the sense of, of, of respect and of, of fear in, in Yahweh, right? We see that Moses quickly bows his head um, and worships Yahweh, right? And so I, I think that, that those are the, the two big, big things for me there. Yeah, and Moses' response is so good because I think the application of the text is to meditate. Is our when we think of God Himself, the triune God of the universe, is our picture in God of God in our heads, not like a, a visual picture, but uh, like our idea of who God is in His character, doesn't match up with the text truly. And so, if you need any praise for this text, Jim Hamilton, who's written a book on biblical theology on the entire Bible, he thinks this shapes every impression we get of God before and after. And uh, if you just think about it, though, like really, before this point in the entire Bible, we've already read the Psalms, we've read the New Testament, so like we understand how loving God is. But like, if you're in this place in the Bible, we haven't seen a demonstration so far in the entire Bible where God's love and nature is so clearly um, laid out in word form for us. I mean, we've seen it in action, but not in word. And then second, Dane Ortland, author of Gentle and Lowly, he says in a different thing he wrote, Short of the incarnation itself, so Jesus, or God the Son coming as a, as a human, short of the incarnation itself, this is perhaps the high point of divine revelation in the Bible. So especially in the Old Testament, at least his sentences make clear, this is the high point of God revealing himself. And so it's clear that we should, you know, pay attention. This is why I think it's one of the best parts of the entire Bible. Yeah, and then, 
And so moving from that and into, you know, we know what God's character is. We also see at the end in, in verse nine, you know, Moses say, you know, now, you know, you know, thank you, Lord, for, for finding favor, um, you know, and pardon our, our sin, um, you know, please take us as, as your inheritance. And, and out of this, what comes out of this is in verse 10, the renewal of the covenant. So um, the Lord, again, makes this covenant that he is going to drive out all the people in the promised land. And he's going to um, make this covenant with Israel um, that he will go with them into the land, drive out, you know, anyone who's who's there, um, Amorites, Canaanites, etc. And um, we see that, you know, also the second part to the covenant is what the, what Israel is to do um, in return. You know, this covenant goes both ways, as we've talked about on this podcast multiple times. Uh, we see that another characteristic of Yahweh that is his jealousy, and that really um, is a big thing that we see in, in kind of what that return piece is, what Israel is to do as a part of this covenant. Um, so we see, um, you know, there's many parts of this, and, and I'm sure you'll have, uh, you know, a few things to add, Michael, but um, the biggest things is coming out of this idea that God is jealous, you know, Yahweh is going to instruct them not to, um, you know, take the daughters of those in the land, right? Not to make these idols um, as they've already done, but not to make um, gods for themselves out of metal, right? And we see that, you know, they are to observe the laws of Yahweh, not to take things of, of these other corrupted people, that they not become corrupted. Um, and so we see how all this really falls into um, the jealousy of God that, you know, what he wants is for them to follow after him, to find joy in following after him, and not to, to be corrupted by these other things um, that they might find along the way. Correct me if I'm wrong, but on the, on the, so we were just on the ski trip and uh, in the Bible study I taught, I think I asked everyone what their favorite attribute to think of about God is. And you said it, yours was his jealousy, right? I might have. Okay. Well, I thought Andre said his jealousy for something and I've actually, that's actually stuck with me over the last two weeks. So reading this again this morning, just rethinking through it stood out to me who, it doesn't just say God is a jealous God. It actually says the Lord whose name is jealous. So God yearning and burning for the affection properly due to him, that's what jealousy means in the biblical context, is that God burns and wants our affection for him, for his glory and for our joy, as Andre said. And this plays itself out in two ways. So Andre kind of covered the disobedience. Um, They're not to whore after other gods and idols, and that plays itself out in sexual morality and in false worship and all that stuff. But then also in a positive direction, they also are to step into what the Lord has called them. So starting in verse 18, on down through uh, 26, they're basically positively following these laws. You know, they're to keep certain feasts. They're to uphold the Sabbath. So earlier we saw that last week that the Sabbath was a sign. So they're upholding the Sabbath. They're going to perform certain sacrifices. They're going to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Ingathering. Three times a year, these males are going to come. That's verse 23. And then verses 25 through 26 are just some somewhat odd, but just different commands about how to properly sacrifice sacrifice. And then so verse 27 and 28 just close out this section telling us that Moses was with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights and that Yahweh hasn't given up on his people. He has renewed the covenant with Israel. That's really good. And then we get into verse 29 where we see that um, Moses comes down um, from from Mount Sinai with the tablets. And we see that his face is shining because he had been talking with God at the end of verse 
29 is where we see that. And moving on to verse 30, the people saw that his face is shining um, and they're afraid to come near him. But what we see is that this shining face, this glow that's coming off his face is, is really demonstrating um, the glory of, of, of Yahweh with whom he was talking. Uh, that's why his face is glowing. And this is kind of an idea we've talked about um, maybe one or two times already on the podcast of kind of what's going to happen next is that in verse 33, Moses um, puts a veil over his face. And this is kind of an idea that we've talked about um, on the podcast. Um, I think we talked about it once with the um, IGTV going through the Bible. And then also um, in, in some of our earlier seasons of, of the idea that um, this glow from, from talking to, to Yahweh that Moses has on his face. And the reason why it's going to be veiled is because, you know, over time we see that this glow is going to diminish until the next time that Moses goes and, and talks to Yahweh. And then we see that, you know, then he speaks to the people again, they can see his glow and then he veils his face again until the next time that he goes and talks um, to Yahweh, which we see in verse 35. So let you add anything to that. Michael, as yeah, well, so, we yeah. So you said earlier seasons in episode 65, I have it right here on my phone. We covered second Corinthians three, which is where it tells us that Moses put a veil over his face, verse 13, so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. So Paul is just saying, this old covenant with Moses is inferior to this new covenant that's been inaugurated with Christ's uh, incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so he's saying, now it's as though when we come into Christ, the veil's been removed. Verse 18, to close out this great chapter in 2 Corinthians 3, we all with unveiled face. So it's as if we don't even have a veil like Moses does to cover because the glory that we have on us being in Christ, it doesn't go away. So he says, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. So there's something that Paul sees here that's not actually in the text, but he interprets it in the Holy Spirit's writing his scripture, his, his letter to the Corinthians, that's telling us that Moses has a veil. So like Andre said, the, they wouldn't see the glory diminishing, but that's not true of people who are in the new covenant. So just wanted to further develop that theme in 2 Corinthians uh, 3. And that's about it. So that's how the chapter closes out. And looking ahead to next week, we'll actually go 35 through 40. And it'll sound like 25 through 31, because instead of it being about the instructions for the tabernacle, it'll be putting those, act those instructions to action with the construction of the tabernacle. So next week we'll cover 35 through 40. Any other thoughts, brother? Any other thoughts for me? I think you did a great job summarizing that. I didn't know what episode it was. We talked about that, but I um, hope that was insightful as well. And hope you guys enjoy the discussion. And we will talk to you guys next week to wrap up the season.